going down And you're invited for what they selling We ain't buying There is no running There is no hiding There's only fighting Or dying It's going down And you're invited for what they selling We ain't buying There is no running There is no hiding There's only fighting Or dying It's Going Down is a digital community center from anarchist, anti-fascist, autonomous, anti-capitalist, and anti-colonial movements. Our mission is to provide an autonomous and resilient platform to publicize and promote revolutionary theory and action. Go to itsgoingdown.org for daily updates. Check out our online store for ways to donate and rate and follow us on iTunes if you like this podcast. Okay, we are back again for another week. We're joined by a special guest this week. Goes by Chill Goblin is the channel that they have on YouTube. We encourage people to check it out. We'll, of course, have a link in the show notes. We're going to be talking about essentially the rise of anarcho-capitalism in a lot of ways and sort of the facets of that, how they've become a growing part of the far right and even within sort of even mainstream, it seems, conservative circles and figures like Michael Malice getting on a lot of different programs, and just sort of what that means. Just to kind of start us off, tell us about the video that you made about Michael Malice, who he is, and let's just start to unpack that as a way to begin the conversation. Sure. So um, thanks for having me, guys. I uh, did a video recently about the conservative, uh, I don't know, pundit, uh, Michael Malice, who is... I would say like a little bit different from a lot of other ANCAPs in that, uh, number one, he's like kind of smart. And number two, he doesn't call himself an ANCAP. Um, he refers to himself as an anarchist without adjectives. And he's been, which I should say is like actually like a legit thing to be like a lot of people, you know, are that, um, he, I would say, you know, I have a lot of adjectives for him, uh, let's just say. And, uh, he's very successful in right wing uh media he's been on like ed- every right wing podcast or you know show you can think of he does a ton of appearances with glenn beck like every week he's on glenn beck he's on everything and he builds himself as an anarchist he doesn't say he's on the right or the left he says you know listen all of the anarchist thinkers I-, I i take bits and pieces from all of them um and he is uh, completely full of shit he is constantly just um uh, repeating like Rothbardian, you know, like far right anarcho-capitalist talking points. Um, just the fact that he's able to go on all these conservative shows and be like, yeah, I'm an anarchist. And everybody is like, I don't know about that. Like a lot of people react to him like that at first. These uh, conservative people, they're like anarchists. Uh, I've been pretty specifically trained to hate these people. They talk to him for like a few minutes and they're like, actually, we seem to agree on pretty much everything. Uh, you're just a little bit more intense about it. So he gets along really well with everyone. And it's quite interesting the way he's been able to kind of, uh, I don't know, create a career for himself. Appearing on, you know, Joe Rogan, Tim Pool, all these, you know, uh, places and really fitting in quite well for someone who says they're an anarchist without adjectives. You have a clip in the video of him on Tim Pool and Tim Pool is basically saying like, 
whoa, 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 isn't this Antifa? And he reassures them, like, oh, no. Because he's talking about his book, uh, which is right. like an anthology of anarchist thinkers, and it has different essays and stuff from, like, Bakunin, Emma mm-hmm. Goldman, I think even Kropotkin's in there. And as yeah. you describe... Conquest of Bread. Yeah, as you describe in the book, basically they start off with, you know, the classical anarchist thinkers, and they end with these anarcho-capitalist authors like Murray Rothbard and basically it's sort of like arguing and there's a there's a clip of him reading this but essentially saying like this ideology started off as this you know anti-authoritarian anti-state anti-capitalist movement and now we understand it to be this right-wing proprietarian anarcho-capitalist ideology that rejects the state and embraces mm-hmm. you know free market capitalism you know no holds barred and so on i should i should also say he does he does that so this is important he starts it out with uh who's the first one i just looked up the tale of contents here first one's william godwin uh max sterner then prudhomme and he goes through like the list like you know all the mutualists anarcho-communists syndicalists whatever uh, he, he ends it with, um, let's see here. We got David Friedman, Murray Rothbard, Josh Hasness, and the final essay in the book is by Michael Malice. So he puts himself at the very end of the uh, genealogy of anarchist thought. Silly that he's trying to like divorce Antifa, which at this point, I mean, especially for, you know, folks like oh, Tim yeah. Pool when they're mentioning is this right wing construction to describe the phenomenon of young people usually they mean it always like young white people because they always say like BLM and Antifa to mean like this group of racial block protesting in the streets and this racial block uh, but they use it to describe you know people at demonstrations so it can really mean anything but trying to divorce literally the, the classical anarchist movement or anarchism in general from anti-fascism which is, is I mean like literally Emma Goldman yeah you know did a speaking tour in support of the CNT and the anarchist movement in Spain fighting against fascism. The idea that somehow yeah. these people are divorced from the anti-fascist struggle or would oppose things like Antifa. As you said, probably they would have argued this shit doesn't go far enough. Yeah, like, you know, he's like talking to Tim Pool and Tim Pool's, you know, he got the basically like Andy No like understanding of anarchism or antifa and he's like i don't know because like antifa nowadays is like really violent and though they like you know just mercilessly kill people just because they whatever and it's like i hope the people in this book aren't like that and he's just like no 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 none of the people in this book are like that they're all good anarchists they're not mean they never would say that you you're you're a bad person if you don't respect i don't know like pronouns or whatever and it's like, bro, you you put like an Emma Goldman essay in there. You remember that about that? Like, you you remember about propaganda of the deed? What are, what are you talking about, man? He also put Johann Most in there, which I thought was which, really yeah. interesting, right? Like, for those of you that don't know, Johann Most was like a early 20th century anarchist thinker, largely wrote in the context of being in the United States, although I don't think he was born here. But uh, he actually got... He had a lot of his newspapers seized for printing, uh, let's call them dangerous instructions in the back, uh, mm-hmm. and giving them names like calling them cookbooks and stuff like that, and just like mm-hmm. really banal names. Um, Wasn't his paper Dynamite? That was his paper was I don't called think Dynamite. Was... Oh, okay, okay, okay. That was yeah, the, name the last his... was uh, Alexander Berkman. Berkman. And Emma Goldman, yeah. you know, as you know, if you listen to Soul, who has a great uh, line 
You know, she literally opened up an ice cream shop to find Alexander Berkman, who tried to kill uh, a famous industrialist, and you know that's why mm-hmm. Berkman went to prison. I mean, and to be clear, really I mean, fucked that up. Yeah, <laughs> and to be clear, I mean, these people also supported unions and you know mm-hmm. mass organizing and stuff. It wasn't just that they were all about you know propaganda of the deed, but I mean, the idea that they somehow were divorced from people taking direct action is just yeah silly. Like Tim Pool is literally like, none of these people would throw a milkshake at someone, would they? <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, Goldman? Yeah, like probably all of them would. Yeah. No, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Oh, 100%. 100%. 100%. Yeah, she would have like taken a shit in it first or something, but yeah. <laughs> no, totally not. I mean, I, also, I gotta, I gotta mention this. Like, the wild thing is, uh, when you look at the, all the chapters and you look at the audiobook and who he got to read each chapter, uh, the Johan Most chapter is read by Curtis Yarvin. You, you really? know who that guy is? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my uh, god. Mencius Moldbug, the guy who like coined the term red pill. Well, yeah. Matrix coined the term red pill, but he coined it as like a fascism kind of metaphor. Um, yeah. Wow. So, <laughs> that's who he got to read the Johann Most chapter. Oh my god. The, uh, yeah. the Emma Goldman chapter read by, uh, uh, Michaela Peterson. Oh my god. I, I find it <laughs> super fascinating. Wild? Not only that part of it, but also the way that the table of contents is laid out is that it sort of works up to, you know, through classical anarchism up to World War II, and then mm. takes this historical revisionist turn and starts to talk about, like, Rothbard and sort of the precursors to neoliberalism and things like this as anarchism, which was a current that existed in capitalist thought at the time, this kind of, like, hyper-libertarian current, which ended up becoming the Libertarian Party in the U.S. Uh, mm. in a lot of ways. Um, but they were not anarchists, and they were, like, very overtly not... Uh, associating with anything having to do with the new left, anything having to do with trade unions, things like this. And so there's this obviously disingenuous element to a text yeah. like this, right? Like they're obviously trying to rewrite the history of modern anarchism, especially in the context of the U.S., when there is a vibrant, vibrant, large community, publishing houses, bookstores, all this stuff down here that's just essentially disappeared in this narrative, right? Yep. And I think to point out two key things is that I think we mentioned the Austrian school, which Murray Rothbard comes out of, but like that group of people, I think there's a couple key things to point out is that when Murray and his pals like developed the idea of anarcho capitalism, they branded themselves as libertarians. And up until that point, you know, now in the U S we think libertarian, we think the libertarian party essentially like, people that want unrestrained capitalism without government intervention, but also they don't care if you like smoke weed or whatever, have guns right. and stuff. They're opposed to like government regulation and intervention on all levels. But libertarian historically meant anarchist. It meant anti-authoritarian, mm-hmm. anti-capitalist, anti-status. And that was a Libertarian term, socialist. Right. You know, liber- anarchists developed that often because they were under duress and they were being repressed, so they needed another term to describe themselves to their readers, especially in the press, because the government was either censoring or shutting down the press or going after folks. And and Rothbard even wrote, you know, there's a thread on it's going down, you can check out, but he wrote, like, we have captured a term from the enemy, from the left, and now we're going to use this to promote our right-wing ideas. In fact, there's even a, a really interesting essay that Rothbard wrote that's entitled are libertarians anarchists and he writes we must conclude that we are not anarchists 
and that those who would call us anarchists are not on firm ground and are being completely unhistorical. So he basically <laughs> answers the question for the rest of the libertarian right, like, you know, should we call ourselves anarchists? And he says no, because historically anarchism has always been an anti-capitalist body of thought and body of ideas. And he goes on to say, he's like, at the same time, you know, we're not going to call our, you know, associate ourselves with, you know, status ideas. So we're like some weird group in between. We're not anarchists because mm. obviously we don't fit into this lineage, but also we're not, you know, on the side of the state and on the right wing sphere. But I mean, he makes it very clear. And there's also another great uh, quote that you have in your video from Ann Rand, where basically she says, like, these stupid hippies on the right, these libertarian, these anarchists or anarcho-capitalists, like, you know, that has nothing to do with my ideology and like basically fuck that yeah. noise. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, the one Ayn Rand quote that's I agree with. Right. And I think that's really important to point out is that, you know, they basically not only stole the label of libertarian from the anarchist movement, but also, you know, as they're known mostly today, anarcho-capitalists or ANCAPs, you know, they were very aware that they had nothing to do with and, and no connection to the term anarchist. Because I see a lot of ANCAPs online, you know, they have this really distorted idea of what anarchism actually is, or anybody that's not them, they call an ANCOM or a commie or something like that. And they right. think that basically that ideology is like Soviet Union plus sex pistols or something which <laughs> shout out you did yeah. a great video on the sex pistols and chumbawamba which is awesome people should check Thanks. it out what was that thing that thing you said murray rothbart wrote that they're not anarchists they shouldn't call themselves anarchists is that right yeah did he actually that right? wrote that under a pen name oh that's really interesting because he was calling himself an anarcho-capitalist right like he was the guy that basically coined that term as far as i understand there was a period where he was calling himself that for sure yeah okay yeah. was that period was that before or after he wrote that my understanding is that was before this kind of turn into the Libertarian Party, right, oh. which was more of a kind of attempt to co-opt or kind of steal energy off the electoral system um, is my understanding of that. What's interesting about that is there were also people around like Murray Bookchin and stuff that were also trying to do that with the Green Party at exactly the same time. And so, like, yeah, they weren't the only group of people trying to do this at the time. Um, this would have been in the early to mid 70s, probably. And I think actually a lot of anarchists don't really realize that like Murray and, and co had such a key impact and involvement within the Libertarian Party. Him and his team were responsible for Ron Paul, essentially. Mm -hmm. So as Murray progressed later in his life, he began shifting more and more to the right and he began embracing what today we would call paleo conservatism or paleo libertarianism is kind of like the term that they coined it but paleo conservatism would be exemplified by people like pat buchanan so essentially like mm -hmm. the grandfather to what we would now consider the alt-right uh yep. totally pat buchanan we've talked a lot about on this show i mean very important figure for understanding basically like where america is at <laughs> he based his ideas around this concept from people like Sam Francis, who's somebody that went to white nationalist conferences like American Renaissance. But Sam Francis's idea was that essentially there's this thing, which he called the middle American radical, which is sort of his idea of like the revolutionary class in America, which was anti elitist, uh, but also like anti left, you know, opposed things like 
the bringing down of Confederate statues and, you know, today would be like the folks against like transgender bathrooms and stuff. People that responded to essentially like these culture war, white identity politics issues. So to him, like that was the revolutionary class within America that would like basically create like a new right wing world. And that's kind of like what Buchanan like, uh, focused around. He's, you know, famously gave a speech at the Republican National Convention pushing the idea of a culture war. You know, he also said things like, you know, we need to look at David Duke's campaign. David Duke is a former Klansman, a neo-Nazi uh, that ran and got like a seat in Louisiana. He said we need to like look at David Duke's campaign, find out, you know, what works well and sort of apply that to what we're doing in the Republican Party. To get back to Murray Rothbard, Murray wanted to basically build an alliance with those folks and even talked about how libertarians could work with people like David Duke when David Duke was you know, in the news and running. So, I mean, you know, he has some pretty intense quotes, things like, you know, we need to have the police push the homeless and the protesters off the streets and just have them like open fire and stuff like that. I mean, he opposed things like the civil rights movement because he said like, well, businesses have the right to deny, you know, black people a seat at the table if they want to and things like that. So he was very much in favor of aligning with even open fascists if basically they could find common ground. And that really kind of sets us up for a lot of what we'll be talking about in this conversation is just like how ANCAPs, even though they have this anti-status ideology, somehow they find themselves essentially on the fascist right and in coalition with neo-Nazis, white nationalists, and people that want this massive authoritarian state. Yeah, there is a like there's a weird like completely nonsensical uh link between, you know, ancaps and libertarians and like fascists. Right? For people who are, you know, either like a, you know, state minimalists or people who are trying to abolish the state entirely to ally themselves with people who are who want like the most powerful state, the fascists, it's it makes no sense on the face of it unless Maybe hear me out on this. Uh, anarcho-capitalism is completely uh, bullshit as a uh, way of looking at <laughs> politics and the world. That would be the only explanation I can come up with. Yeah, I mean, we saw before we started recording, we were talking about this pretty extensively and some of the development of that. And one of the kind of inflection points I brought up was Gamergate, right? Where we had this kind of weird crossover between these kind of I don't want to call them free speech absolutists because they refer to themselves as such. And it's not that's not actually an accurate term. What the, what that group of people yeah. is arguing is not that they want the ability to speak without the government repressing them, which would actually be the sort of narrative of, quote, free speech. But they want to be able to speak without consequence, including social consequence. So they want consequence free speech. They want to be able to say things because that's the most important thing ever. Yet it's also something that no one should ever react to mm-hmm. because it's just words, right? Yep. That world crossed over with the like growing incel kind of misogynist scene that was building up on Reddit. And that's how you started seeing people like Milo pop up, right? And you started seeing people like Richard Spencer talking about free speech. He was a fascist, <laughs> right? Who in the same speech sometimes we'll talk about how he wants to use the power of the state to repress his enemies and then ends the speech talking about how he's very mad people are getting kicked off Twitter because free speech, right? Like that crossover I think is probably the single most important thing to try and understand about these people because it's so confusing. 
on that, I have been thinking about this a lot lately. The like basically the same way that you know uh, ANCAP's co-opted the term libertarian, which used to just refer to left-wing libertarian socialists, and also like co-opting the term anarchy to call themselves anarcho-capitalists, or like what Michael Malice is doing, calling himself an anarchist. It links up with the way that the the right has redefined the term freedom to not really refer to freedom of people but like free markets and free you know money and free freeing up all these things and it's the same thing with like free speech it's like no no like i have the right to say whatever i want on whatever platform i want to say it on and i should have a you know i should be on netflix i should be on mainstream tv i should be allowed to do all this when that's not really what I don't know. I think a, I don't think that's a very good like definition of freedom. I don't really care how free markets are if they're like oppressing people and making people, uh, less free. That's not true liberty. Like the fact that people are calling themselves libertarians who are like, yeah, absolutely. Like there should be no government and everything should be, uh, privately owned. We should, we should, oh, abolish the police, but let's get some private police in here. Mm-hmm. Let's do that. Mm-hmm. Let's let uh, Jeff Bezos get a whole his own like standing army. That that's exactly what we need. Like that doesn't sound like freedom to me. That sounds like much much less free than I would ideally like to be in this world. Yeah, and I mean, again, we were talking about this too, kind of before we started recording. But this kind of crossover point with people like Milton Friedman, right? Mm-hmm. So when you read a book like Capitalism and Freedom, or I mean, literally any other thing that Friedman ever wrote, Money Matters. His name is, is Friedman. Yeah. Whoa. Everything about yeah. that. Dang. Yeah, yeah. And he wrote a book on currency. Like he he wrote a, a number of texts, but in Capitalism and Freedom, one of the things that he talks about is. And, and we saw this play out in Chile in 73, mm-hmm. which Milton Friedman was an advisor to Pinochet. That was the kind of beginning of neoliberalism. Um, yeah. Pinochet he, was they, a Chile is like the, the laboratory for neoliberalism. They're like, yeah, let's, let's try this out. We got, we got, uh, this, uh, we did this coup there. Now let's let this military, uh, you know, fascist dictator, let's uh, give him some advice on how to run the economy and then it, yeah. it worked well, well Pinochet, he's become a figure on the right and proud boys wear shirts about throwing yeah. commies out of helicopters oh right? yeah like, you see that all well, of that everywhere Pinochet. yeah, yeah and you so everywhere. you have this guy who is the person who wrote books that influenced margaret thatcher and ronald reagan being pinochet's most important economic advisor and to a lot of people that didn't make a lot of sense but what it came down to for friedman and i think that this is where he departs from people like rothbard and this is where the kind of contradictions and what is referred to as anarcho-capitalism kind of really become apparent. One of the things Friedman would say is, well, I mean, but we're capitalists, so the goal is to make profit. And if there's no cops, how are you going to stop the strikes? How are you going to stop Mm. the riots? How are you going to keep people going to work? Right? How are you going to force that to happen? How are you going to privatize things if there's no way to enforce ownership? Because if there's no police, Ownership is meaningless. It's, it's just some sort of category that we put to an object. It doesn't actually mean anything. And so there is this fundamental problem that Friedman, oddly enough, probably points out most effectively, which is that there is this sort of there's this kind of sense in which what people like Rothbard are trying to do or what those assholes on that HBO show are talking about is this sort of process in which they want to talk about inscribing a certain sense of meaning and way of living into everyday life 
but then want to ignore what that actually practically materially means and the relationship between that and policing, right? And so mm. we end up with this kind of structure in which Rothbard is talking about anti-statism, but also is real tight with Milton Friedman, who is working for Pinochet, right? And like that crossover, that sort of, that sort of inflection point between them, yeah. that's the thing that fascinates me right there. Is like, it's so interesting. Point. Yeah. Me, yeah. Me too. It's, it's so weird. Cause like, how can you be like one thing I think that is a, that like, I, I don't know. I, I've watched a lot of, uh, uh, Friedman's, you know, giving speeches and shit. And I find him like, a very disgusting, uh, person. Um, and one of the things that, that really like enrages me about his shit is the way he refers to what happened in Chile when they, uh, instituted these neoliberal policies and sort of like tried out their plan for the rest of the world in Chile. And, uh, the, what he, he refers to it as a, a the Chilean miracle, I think, yeah. or is it the yep. Chilean economic miracle yep. that after they instituted these reforms, Oh, look at that. All the GDP is going up. <gasps> We've solved it. Oh, it's a miracle. But like, meanwhile, Pinochet's in there. He's killing thousands of his own people, like torturing like tens of thousands. You know, people are just disappearing, you know, being imprisoned unjustly. This is not the, it is wild to call this a miracle. It is just completely nonsensical to call this freedom to call this like liberty for these people and yet this is never questioned the guy wins a nobel prize in economics the guy is like huge massively respected the guy is like a hugely influential figure not even just on the right like in in general like it is absolutely wild to me and when you hear him talk about it and even when he's like asked about the yeah, what about the like, uh, you know, military junta? What about the CIA coup? What about all this? And he's just like, well, it was good that we were able to save Chile, to save the Chilean market and and set it free. Yeah, market was a, yeah in prison for too long under Allende or whatever. Like, dude, man, like how like just like mental gymnastics at play here and making this seem like a good thing i think it's important to point out that a lot of anarcho capitalists now would argue much like marxist leninists would argue that there needs to be this transitionary period of proletarian dictatorship or you know this, uh. the seizure of state power by this vanguard party in order to get to communism or something like that Oh, okay. Yeah, it's like the transitionary vanguard uh, state towards statelessness. So yeah. Towards so a, a lot of anarcho-capitalists <laughs> would argue we need like a Pinochet type figure. We need a, like a very authoritarian fascist state in order to get to the inversion goal, which is anarcho-capitalism or whatever. And there's yeah. actually a book called Reactionary Liberty that's very popular in in those circles that argues that libertarians must essentially push this authoritarian politic. And you see a lot of people picking that up. Uh, I mean, like Christopher Cantwell, who spoke at Unite the Right. Yeah. yeah. Essentially, that's yep. the, that's the their, crying Nazi, right? Yeah. The crying, oh, yeah, Nazi. The crying Nazi. That's mm-hmm. the trajectory he went on. I mean, he still uh-huh. you know, has the symbols of anarcho-capitalism around him. He has like the yellow and black flag, which is, such a joke. I mean, you know, rip off of the oh, yeah. anarchist red and black flag. You have people like Augustus Invictus, who, you know, has long time been in white nationalist and neo-Nazi circles. Another Unite the Right speaker. He was heavily involved in the Fraternal Order of Alt Knights, which was the yeah. 
military yeah. wing of the Proud Boys. I mean, he was deeply involved in the Libertarian Party in a lot of different states. But I mean, he comes out of that trajectory. There's also even a caucus within the Libertarian Party itself now called the Mises Caucus, which is essentially a paleo-conservative libertarian caucus that, you know, from what I understand, has a lot of, you know, what we would consider like alt-right and fasci folks within it. And that is definitely gaining momentum within the Libertarian Party. We were talking about this before we started recording, but I think that as Trump loses currency and the MAGA cult kind of evaporates and it's sort of, you know, the younger folks that have very far-right ideas and want to advance those, and they kind of get divorced from, like, the the MAGA boomers who still want to go to the cult rallies and and worship Trump. (laughs) I think as that divide grows... We're going to see more and more people rebrand themselves outside of MAGAism as these weird libertarians and ANCAPs. So I think, you know, one of the things we've got to think about as anarchists or libertarian socialists or autonomous or whatever the hell you call yourself, what do we do about the continued appropriation of the term anarchist and essentially quote unquote leftist forms by the right? Like, what does that mean? Like, you know, what does it mean for Michael Malice to go on Glenn Beck's show every week and talk as an anarchist? Is that something that he's doing just as a branding move? Or is he doing that also, too, because it, like, hurts the left and hurts the anarchist movement, too? I don't know, honestly. Like, it, one thing that always always has confused me about ANCAPs is that, like, really, why would you want to appropriate, like, anarchists as a term like do you think that like if you tell people you're an anarchist they'll be more likely to listen to your ideas like that doesn't even work when your ideas are actually good i don't know why that would even be helpful to them like you know well i think you kind of answered this in your video you said you know who wants to listen to something that's like i'm a capitalist i mean Mm. it's like when people use the term full communism you know i want a stateless and classless society now i mean to me, that's just anarchism, but yeah. it, they're essentially full capitalists. Like, I want capitalist relationships in all aspects of society. Jeff Berwick, who's at the center of the HBO series, I mean, the way he describes anarcho-capitalism, I think, is actually very astute. He says capitalism is an economic and political system, meaning that we want to privatize all aspects of society, including, like, politics which means that, you know, we would have privatized courts, privatized police, you know, privatized roads. I mean, as Noam Chomsky would point out, I mean, to me, that's a hellscape, you know, like, you know, you, you drove on my road, give me five bucks. Like, you know, now I'm going to have my private police like come and arrest you. And, and now I'm going to haul you off to my private court. And I mean, I don't even know how that would work. It's warlordism essentially. I mean, like that is what warlordism functionally is, is a, number of groups that all have their own sort of militia structures competing for resources like that is yep. warlordism there's nothing but, else in that vision except that right i was gonna say people like ayn rand when they really got pressed on the whole private security thing murray rothbard there's uh, an exchange i can't find at the moment but there's an exchange where he got asked about this as well and it gets really uh it gets really weird at that point because Someone goes, okay, but who's going to make sure that the private police don't just exercise arbitrary power? And he goes, well, we'll have private courts. Mm-hmm. He goes, well, who gets to choose the judges? And he's like, well, <laughs> I do because I'm paying them. And then someone goes, okay, but what you're saying then is then that you just get to decide who gets to get <laughs> beat up by the police. And that's really what you want. 
and that you're willing to pay money for that right. Yeah. And he just really had no way to answer that because at the core of this, (laughs) I think is they have a very paradoxical understanding of ontology about how we exist Mm. in the world, right? In which on, and this is something that I think infects the entirety of conservative thought. On one hand, there is this sort of figure, right? Of the autonomous individual, the John Galtz, the like, you know, person who the, the great man. Figure, yeah. yeah, who's going to like go out and like, you know, be successful and blah, blah. You see this in even prosperity doctrine stuff within like right wing Christianity. You see elements of this, right? Yeah. But at the end, that person, that figure is a construct of the philosophical enlightenment, right? That sort of idea that we can be autonomous moral decision makers is the roots of liberal democracy. It's the roots of capitalist mercantilism. Adam Smith talks about this. David Hume talked about this and whenever he wrote books on economics. So like that idea is very old. But what's weird about that concept or what's weird about conservatism is conservatism is also trying to achieve very specific, a very specific social future, right? Now that very specific social future might change, but it is in all cases generalized. And so on one hand, we have these autonomous moral decision making individuals that are then entirely disappeared within this mass vision of society, right? Which they then claim is there to reinforce individualism in that kind of strange capitalist understanding of the individual. There's no way to square that. I mean, like in the Republican Party, you see that as the the tension between, you know, in the 90s would be small government Republicans and the religious right, mm-hmm. where there's some arguing that like, I, there was this, I forgot who it was, uh, maybe mid nineties, there was a speech given by a Republican politician from, I think, Massachusetts, um, at a Republican convention. And it was a, it was a speech against banning abortion because he was a libertarian, right? And he's mm. like, well, people get to make choices. And he got booed out of the room, right? And so like that tension between these kind of very rigid visions of the future and these very kind of fragmented, atomized understandings of individuals, that paradox is really difficult. Well, you can't square it. it it's it's a yeah. fundamental contradiction, but it forms the core of so much of what they do. Right? I, I think uh, Rothbard's uh, argument against abortion was something like, um, yeah, it is murder to kill a fetus, but it's OK because the fetus is trespassing. That is. Uh, oh, my God. <laughs> that made, that's why it's fine. <laughs> Pledge to make them fight and stay or join the battle. They're never gonna die. Oh, la quinta brigada against the fascist clan. Our brotherhood of thunder, no pasada. Fight against the 
as we're interrogating this ideology of anarcho-capitalism, like, you know, at what point do people start occurring property in this society? Like, does everybody start at zero and then, like, everyone's like, okay, go? If the goal is basically to, like, acquire property, you know, capital, which is the, you know, then you have people work for you. So then you sell stuff on a market, which is how you get profit. How do you determine who controls mm. what? Is it we starting at where we're at now and that we just assume like that's okay and then like everyone kind of goes forward from there without a state? Or do we all sort of go back to zero and then somehow we're going to like accumulate land and property based on what system of measure? Yeah, we're going to start the monopoly game over again, clear the board, let everybody uh, accumulate stuff. Right, and it's interesting because, I mean, a lot of people have drawn the comparison to what happened in the European invasion and colonization of Turtle Island, because there you have literally tens of millions of people living in different societies that have very different ideas in different ways about property relations, about, you know, the way they relate to the land, coming up against, you know, people who often were like, oh, there's no fences here, like, I guess I can take this, and... What happens, you know, when they encounter people who were people that were living and inhabiting on those territories, you know, there was genocide, massive, massive genocide. And it's interesting because I was listening to uh, that person I was talking about earlier, Ashton Birdie, and they literally said, like, you know, the, the kind of society they want or what they envision when they think about these ideas is the wild, wild west. So, I mean, even they themselves envision things looking that way essentially like you know if i want this and you know there's and i can take it from you then i'll do that and that's how i'm gonna acquire property and land i mean i think the other thing is that they always see themselves as the winner in that situation as the person that has all the property has all the wealth is able to buy apparently you know private security in the courts i mean what about everyone else that is working for them or even like working private security i mean like what happens to them and also how are they going to ensure those like class differences you know don't actually erupt into class conflict and class war yeah yeah i mean are they going to hire a private fbi to like you know sniff out the bad workers like the the way to maybe the maybe one of the best ways to combat uh the rise of anarcho-capitalism is just to like Get them to play through the tape. Like, what's gonna? How is the policing gonna work? How is the private security gonna work? Like, uh, how how are who's gonna build the roads? Is like the classic like uh, libertarian <laughs> stump question. But um, yeah, like like Michael Malice, he seems very reasonable when he talks. But I think one place where he definitely falls flat and is not really convincing anyone is when he talks about police, uh, because his view. Uh, is something like well like you were saying like warlords but it's uh he's like it would be like it police calling the police would be calling uber so imagine police were just like uber you got all these different apps on your phone and there's like they're competing they compete with each other and if you call one group of of these you know private police to come do something they do a bad job well we'd have something like yelp you could write a negative review you're giving like a one-star review on cop yelp and all of a sudden that would hurt their business. That sounds batshit, but there's actually a clip from Anarchopoco, the conference. I don't know if it's in the HBO documentary or if it's in like something I've seen, but they literally talk about that. They're like, we're working on making the police yeah. like an Uber app. And in fact, in like, you know, really wealthy yeah. neighborhoods, they already have private security that huh? you can call and use like a police force. Yeah. There are already private security. 
That no, exists. You see, in, you see in gentrified parts of cities, they patrol streets and stuff. Yeah, yeah, they're private security that patrol streets and call the police on people. It's crazy. It's really, really, like, that vision, I mean, in the place I live, we have seen that, and we've seen nonprofit organizations build, you know, what they call community-funded security, which is essentially hiring private security guards to police the neighborhood and putting up a private surveillance camera network that's managed by a nonprofit and universally accessible by the actual police. Now, if we think about what that means, it means that cops no longer need warrants to watch anybody for anything. They can just wait for the surveillance camera to pick them up. Like, Mm. that's the future that they're talking about, right? That's the thing that they really are trying to sort of make happen here. It's really... um Dystopian would be like the way that to put it. Sounds like a, a state. Like if if the <laughs> we abolish the state, but we still have cops watching us and whatever, like enforcing justice as they see it. Like that is a state. Like if a state is a monopoly on violence, then what is going on here? Like that, how how is that an argument for anarchy? I was gonna say if we're gonna use the Carl Schmidt definition of the state, yeah, right, which is I mean, the like, kind of logistics of imposing sovereignty. Well, what is that except the logistics of imposing sovereignty? I mean, like, there's no other way to view that. It is textbook Schmidtian state without all the trappings of internationalism or something like that. But that's not what defines the state. What defines the state is policing. So whether those cops are paid with tax dollars or paid like Uber doesn't actually matter literally at all. It is irrelevant to whether or not that constitutes statism. I mean, I think the other thing to add into the mix here, and if there are any anarcho-capitalists listening, I'm sure they're like, you know, <laughs> pulling their hair out because we haven't mentioned it, but to them, at the center of their doctrine is this idea called the NAP or the non-aggression principle, sort of like their version of mutual aid, I guess. The idea is that, you know, they will not transgress against anybody unless they're, them or their property is infringed upon. We'll never go to war or engage in violence unless you attack me. Or you attack my property. It's like who who enforces that? How does that get? How would that be exactly like that? Yeah. The the other thing that I, I hear ANCAPs argue a lot is um, the idea that they're like totally against monopolies. They don't believe in any kind of a monopoly. And under an anarcho capitalist world, there would be no way to get a monopoly on anything because the only way to get a monopoly on something is to work with the state. That's how. You know, oh, people get that's how uh, standard monopolies. oil did it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like there are like global monopolies. There are like, yeah. you know, it's uh, completely. I've I've never really seen an explanation of why that that would be impossible. And especially like, yeah, like uh, you know, one of you said earlier, if there's, what are we gonna do? Are we gonna start all start from zero? Does like you know, Elon Musk get to keep all his money, uh, and then we just go from there? Because we're already going to have monopolies. Is Jeff Bezos still exists? Does Amazon still exist? It's, well, uh, then, then we end up with, I mean, bigger problems. Who gets to issue currency? I mean, like, there's all of these yeah. issues. Like, I, I'll never forget uh, at Occupy in the city I lived in at the time, um, there was this weird, like, Ron Paul libertarian showed up, right? With, like, you know, a yellow-black flag, you know, the whole thing. Oh, wow. um, of course, nobody in anarchy camp would have anything to do with this person, but I was like, ah, I'm interested. Let's go see what this guy's going to say. <laughs> and we start talking about currency. And he goes, yeah, but if we go back to the gold standard, and I'm like, yeah, we would shrink the monetary supply by a factor of about 700. But okay, 
how is that different than other money? And he goes, because it's gold. And I'm like, yeah, and money's paper. And we give a value to the paper just like we give a value to the gold. Yeah. Why add the extra It's, like, it's not a social construct anymore. It's a shiny rock. Yeah, it's real. Exactly. And that's what he said. And I'm like, well, then why does the shiny rock have value, right? Like <laughs> this, this becomes a fundamental problem. Now, of course, anarcho-capitalists are going to say cryptocurrency. Great. And, oh, they love um, their crypto. They love their crypto. But anyone that's ever dealt in cryptocurrency at all ever, when you're trying to manage four or five wallets at the same time, it becomes really confusing all of a sudden as far as where your money is and who holds it and what happens if you lose your wallet or in the case of like a bunch of early Bitcoin people trash their laptop because Bitcoin wasn't worth anything at the time and their wallet that's now worth a hundred million dollars is chilling in a landfill somewhere, you know, like that kind of stuff starts to come up. So then the question becomes, okay, who gets to stop people from stealing each other's cryptocurrency? And then we're back to police all of a sudden, right? Like this is kind of where the issue emerges. I mean, we sort of agree where we have property policing becomes inherent necessarily. There's so many other points. I mean, like, you know, on cryptocurrency, like as a lot of people pointed out, the only reason people like cryptocurrency is because you can turn it into dollars and that's an actual thing, which you can use to uh-huh. go buy goods and services. <laughs> yeah. What is their plan to actually deal with the problems that humanity faces right now? You know, rising fascism, which apparently they're have a coalition coalition with totally cool with global warming. Totally cool with it. uh, Jeff Berg thinks it's it's a false flag from apparently the Jews, quote unquote. So of course that's out the window. I mean, like increasing levels of inequality. I mean, again, like how would an anarcho-capitalist society deal with that? It seems, if anything. It's all about removing the barriers that the state imposes upon capital to try to rein it in or regulate it, you know, to stop it from like, I don't know, poisoning all of the water, <laughs> you know, or oh, allowing yeah. things like yeah. unions to exist because it's better to have social peace than like extreme class tensions because, you know, the proles might start getting ideas. Oh, un- unions. Oh, that's not, that's not free speech. That's not, uh, whatever, like free freedom. Yeah. That's, that's, uh, infringing on other people's freedom okay listen don't ask me for a raise all right haven't you heard of the non-aggression principle i'm feeling very <laughs> aggressed to right now i think maybe we're giving this too much credit than it's due i was uh, just yeah. about to say i think we're, we're taking them at their work right which i think is right. part of the problem of how people analyze the right wing in general so like mm, the all totally right agree. They take at their work right like they were for everything else, for all the deception, oh, yeah, if you yeah, really yeah. pressed them on it, they would tell you what they thought, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. But it's like, I think this guy's uh, got his uh, Hitler profile picture because he's trying to set off a good impression. <laughs> totally. Pretty sure he's, you, got it. he's hiding something here. When you get into Trumpism, language starts to mean nothing. It becomes purely instrumental, right? So it's really this like goal of you know, sort of whatever your political objective is. And I would argue that the Republican Party has been doing that for a long time. The Democrats do this too, right? It's really this game of using language as a way to achieve just an objective and no longer about ideas. This is very much, I mean, the more and more and more that I look at these circles of people, I see this too, right? Whether they want to skew into talking about monarchism, whether they want to call themselves anarcho-capitalists, whether they want to, you know, embrace some kind of weird appropriation of MAGA culture, whatever it happens to be, there's this kind of sense in which taking it seriously almost kind of misses the point, right? Because they themselves don't take the word seriously. And so I think the big question that always comes up, you know, this is, this is something, you know, in the U.S., people talk a lot about how, like, the state's rights argument is really a way to cover for institutionalized racism, 
and mm. has always been used that way. Um, so I guess, I guess the question is, how do we view what these people are trying to achieve? Because it's definitely not what they say they're trying to achieve. If it was, they wouldn't be working with fascists, right? So yeah. what is going on here that allows us to understand something which on a philosophical level is entirely incoherent, like completely mm. incoherent? I think that, okay, here, here's my theory on that. I think that's a, that's a really good question. It just like, again, this weird connection between two seemingly completely contradictory ideas of like being, uh, you know, anarcho-capitalist and a fascist. Uh, I feel like, you know, when I think about like neoliberalism, I, which is, you know, like a, less intense version of anarcho-capitalism in my opinion like they're i think they have a lot of similarities um they like neoliberalism sort of seems like inevitably the an ideology that will uh you know pop up as capitalism has been around for a while the wealthy get more money and more political power and are able to exert their influence to give themselves more power and more you know freedom to amass more wealth and therefore more power and that sort of like you know vicious circle or whatever you would call it um and like that's you know an, an inevitability of capitalism and then the idea of fascism as sort of capitalism in decay or like you know the the last gasp of uh you know imperialism turned inward sort of thing where uh, these are both like they're they're different, but they're not contradictory. Like uh, uh, the uh, the term privatization, I believe, was coined to describe what the Nazis were doing in Germany. Like they were privatizing a you know a ton of social you know uh, nationalized programs and getting uh, them making themselves very rich, like the people at the top of the Nazi party, and. Of course, that predates like neoliberalism as we uh, understand it, but the ideas are not at all contradictory. And as far as like uh, when we look back at like Mises or Hayek or you know the, the classical liberals who were said basically, as far as I understand, their ideas is pretty much what if we just let rich people do whatever they wanted? Wouldn't that be good for society? And then like a lot of rich people were like, that's a really good idea. Let's think more about this and how these. These two sort of symptoms of of capitalism as a <laughs> virus are they they work in tandem. They're not uh, completely contradictory. And most most uh, arguments for neoliberalism or uh, you know libertarianism or uh, anarcho capitalism are they must be disingenuous by the people who make them. I'm sure there are people who genuinely believe these things. I mean, I know there are. But uh, at the end of the day, they are serving a pretty nefarious purpose um, that doesn't actually have the good of all humanity in mind. It says has the, the good of a, a very few people. I don't know. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, and it, it raises a huge complication, right? And I think that this is a complication that in the U.S. we've been trying to figure out for a while at this point. But at the point in which the words are disingenuous – and the concepts are being thrown out there as structures of justification, which really is what's happening here. What is the point of discourse? <laughs> right? So right. if if there is no longer a point to discussing ideas because we're no longer discussing ideas in good faith, right? What is the purpose? Right? And so where that gets really complicated in liberal democratic structures, for example, is 
liberal democracy is grounded in the notion of taking all political conflict and locking it inside of parliamentary structures, right? Which is how liberal democratic systems like in the U.S. can justify extreme police repression of protests is they say, you can speak freely, but everything has to happen within this discursive realm. Like once it breaks into material conflict, right. that's bad, right? Right. So at yeah, this yeah, yeah. point, we're not dealing discursively anymore, right? But yet when liberals want to criticize us for anti-fascist activity, one of the things they say is, but you should just talk to them. How do we start to like have that conversation, right? When talking no longer is relevant at all, because there's no purpose in doing it because we're no longer discussing concepts and things become material in a you know more direct way. This this sort of structure becomes really complicated to figure out how to deal with because it's very nebulous and it's sort of all over the place. It's not really located anywhere, even if that dumb HBO series is filmed some stuff in Mexico. There are people all over the world like this, all over. And there's a lot of people that kind of weirdly cross lines. I mean, you see this in tech a lot where you have People who might be pro-union, but are also super pro-capitalist, right? Um, yeah. All the time, right? And mm. so, like, how do we start to, what does pushback against something like this look like? Like, how do we start to engage with something that is simultaneously material, but non-locatable? It's, with fascists, we know where they are, <laughs> right? We can find them, right? Sometimes, it's, yeah. Sometimes it's not quite the same with this, you know? Ah, yeah. Obviously, these people are speaking to somebody. Like, obviously, somebody's listening to Michael Malice. He has a wider audience, probably wider than we have, unfortunately. Oh, yeah, he's huge. Regularly ratios the New York Times on Twitter. What does that mean for us? Like, is he reaching people that would, in another, you know, instance, like, listen to what we have to say? Or is he just reaching another far-right audience that, like, doesn't want anything to do with our ideas? I think those are interesting things. Like, is he weaponizing that term basically to get in front of us to basically sort of like, you know, how tankies might show up to like an anarchist book fair and try to like set up a table? You know, they, they want to basically right. inhabit the space and like, you know, gain recruits and followers from people that are there, even though they have no alliance to the ideas of the movement. Is that essentially what he's doing? Basically taking over that label in order to siphon off folks that like might show up. I mean, that's essentially what the National Anarchists did uh, a couple decades ago when they tried to basically rebrand themselves away from white nationalism and say like, oh, hey, no, we're National Anarchists. It's cool. Like we just want autonomous communities for every racial group. Wow. Okay, I didn't know about these guys, but uh, the the name the term yeah. National Anarchists is already pretty hilarious. Yeah. Keith Preston, Troy Southgate, uh, that circle of people there was a group in the bay area called bay area national anarchists that you know popped up and you know they were they were smallish but i mean you know they would do things like food not bombs but only for white people you know they'd like walk around and like give like a sandwich <laughs> like white homeless yeah. people <laughs> which i mean that must have led to some awkward conversations like one for you one for you not for jesus you. christ wow uh, but I, you know or they would show up at like you know Palestine solidarity rallies and like, you know, pass out literature against the Jews mm. or, you know, right wing events and pass out stuff. But I mean, they essentially branded themselves with anarchist symbols and you had to basically like read into the ideology in order to like understand. And for like, you know, new folks that are just showing up, it, it could be very easy for them unless they actually like, you know, really sat down and like read through the stuff of just on face value. They could be like, oh, here's an anarchist group. Like I want to join it, you know, because I'm into this. And I'm sure that they managed to like get some folks from that uh tactic. But I just wonder like, 
you know, is there something that we're not doing that we could to like intervene to like get folks off from like the Michael Malice folks of the world? Or is that just a, a hopeless endeavor and we should focus instead on like the trajectory in which we're doing to like take a page from older groups like the Phoenix Class War Council, which did a lot of work and writing around like cracking the libertarian right? You know, is there a way to basically crack these movements around their contradictions to point out like the problems and you know why they're stupid which is essentially like what igd is doing on twitter with the whole anarchists on hbo series like hey your main guy you're presenting this sort of this harmless like silly guru of you know voluntarist ideas and here he is praising hitler and talking about how the holocaust didn't happen like how do you square that circle mm-hmm. Seems like a pretty important thing to leave out, honestly. Right. And here's the directors on his podcast like two years ago. Gee, I wonder why you're not talking about the fact that he's this raging, like far right conspiracy theorist who's a, a racist. I, that's like a really, really tough question. I think like, honestly, like Michael Malice just has like so much more like access than most left wing anarchists do. Um, I guess pretty much all left wing anarchists. You know, more like funding, more access to money, more access to platforms that, uh, yeah, it's very difficult to, to create something that can combat that. I, I don't know what the answer is. That's a, yeah, that's like the, the question. Yeah. Well, we've run into this other problem in the U.S. So there, there's this, uh, kind of inflection point in hacker culture that's really interesting and I think kind of instructive here, uh, which happened actually just before Gamergate. And so if you really look at 2008-ish up until the beginning of Gamergate, what you really saw was not only the rise of Anonymous, but you saw a lot of left-wing hacker pushback against the rise of the far right, especially on platforms like 4chan, right? And it really was holding those people in check. And then the feds arrested a bunch of people and a bunch of other people went to ground, like went quiet, like went dark. And it created the conditions for the alt-right to rise without any real opposition on the internet. But that is all to say, we deal with a different problem set than they do in a lot of ways, in that we have to deal with repression, and they don't. I mean, this is one of the problems that, uh, one of the issues we have when we're trying to counter tankies, too, is like, there's a reason the FBI doesn't go after the PSL, and it's because they're not a threat. Like, they're essentially just liberals that talk about guns. Like, that's it. They're really nothing other than that. But when we start talking about anarchists in the U.S., and especially anarchists in the Rust Belt or cities like Chicago, where there's this long history of anarchists and police kind of counterviolence back and forth, um, repression becomes real really fast. And it makes it really difficult to counter someone like Michael Malice because we can't, in a lot of ways, be as out there as someone like him because we actually have security considerations taken into account. Um, it makes the situation, the terrain, really, really difficult to navigate in that way. You're listening to It's Going Down, part of the Channel Zero Anarchist Podcast Network. Follow us online at itsgoingdown.org and on Twitter at IGD underscore news. If you like and appreciate this podcast, go to itsgoingdown.org slash shop and give us a one-time donation. Sign up to donate monthly or donate through Bitcoin. Again, that's itsgoingdown.org slash shop to support. And now, back to the show. Look at the Anarcho-Poker Conference. If you go to the website, look on, it says partners. 
the people that are funding that conference, I mean, I don't know how they do it. I mean, they're putting money into it somehow or they're getting something out of it. But the people that are sponsoring it in some way are literally real estate companies, travel companies, and lots and lots of crypto companies. People that have money. I mean, there are people literally that are like promoting like the selling of mansions that are associated with the conference that are pumping money into that conference down there. Uh, because they want to encourage people to move there and then like spend a bunch of money buying like some uh, big ass mansion. You know, that's never going to happen at like, you know, your local anarchist book fair. I mean, maybe the local co-op will show up and like, you know, serve coffee or food or food not bombs will come out and like feed people or something like that. Or, you know, the local IWW will lend their union hall or something. But I mean, you're never going to have like big corporations like align with that. Like that's just totally asinine. Um, and rightfully so. So I think it's, it's, it becomes hard to like compare both of these things. At a certain point, it became hard to like compare like the growing anti-fascist movement with the alt-right because the alt-right at a certain point became so tied with certain segments of official politics and like the GOP, you know, like the Groypers right now. Yeah. And also like these groups aren't involved in like social struggles or anything. I mean, they're essentially like making podcasts. You know, they're making content. Like, that's what their movement does. It's making ideological content to pump out to essentially people, the same folks that are watching, like Joe Rogan and stuff. Like fascists, anarcho-capitalists and the like have a bit of an advantage over, like, you know, liberals as far as appealing to this specific kind of demographic that is, like, disenfranchised, like... You know, they've been uh, they've they've lived through several recessions at this point. They're uh, they're angry at the way things are and like justifiably so Uh, they the the people on the the far right, the the fascists and the end caps are able to critique, you know, capitalism in a way that liberals and, you know, conservatives aren't really they don't really have the ability to. Uh, point out like what the problem is. Oh, look at this like uh, corruption. Look at the, what the state's doing to you. Look at what capitalism is doing to you. Whatever. Like, or they probably would use it with capitalism. But they can kind of point out things that are is uh, much more difficult for people in the um, Overton window to do that. Uh, and these people are like looking for an answer. And I think that's why a lot of people get pulled into fascism and. Um, you know, any kind of far right ideology, uh, because they have, they're justifiably frustrated with their lives and they need a solution. Um, of course, the solutions that are offered by the fascists and the ANCAPs are ridiculous and they, they will create a horrible nightmare world that uh, no one, you know, wants, but, uh, they're, they're able to speak appealingly to them. And I think that because the left does have a better answers and like the real anarchists also understand what's going on and why people have the conditions that they do and what's what's wrong and what's motivating that i don't know um i feel like there has to be a way to to reach people that uh that are that could somehow have a a, a positive effect that people on the the far right wouldn't have i don't know i sort i feel like i sort of lost my grasp of that idea as I started saying it, but I do think that there's something there. There's, there's some way that 
we can win here. I'm not exactly sure on tactics, but uh, I think it's possible. I think like the how to respond on the internet is an open question beyond just continuing to do what we're doing and obviously growing. I mean, like look for instance, like a channels like yours, like a couple years ago, like the reach that you have right now, and like all the other folks like doing really great content, whether it's like Anarcho Pack oh, or yeah. Andrewism, who we've had on the we've had both of them. On oh, the show. nice, yeah, those those uh, are both great channels. Love those guys. Thought Slime's good. Yeah, like you all have a sizable reach now and you're growing. Which is great, uh, but I mean, like a couple years ago, that would have, you know, people would have been like, oh, how would we ever get to this point? But I think at the same time, too, I mean, like, uh, there's something to be said about, like, thinking about how we can, like, intervene in the, in the real world. You know, over the years, there's been different forms of intervention. I mean, people have gone to, like, gun shows and tabled. Oh, that's a good idea. And also the types of struggles that are in, you know, rural areas mm. that, like, are working with folks that would be attracted to these ideas. I mean, whether that's tenant organizing or all the work that went into like fighting pipelines, that's like bringing people in, in rural communities together. I mean, I think those are totally. really important. R- rural communities used to be so much more left wing. Oh yeah. It's, uh, yeah. Really interesting how that's kind of fell apart for, for us. I mean, like right now there's an article up on it's going down about uh, people doing uh, disaster work in, Tennessee and Virginia in the in, in the wake of the storms. I mean, stuff like that is really important. So I mean, people come face to face with people associated with our kind of ideas, and they have to reckon with the fact that like, okay, now I've 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 done this project or I've I've had this relationship with this quote unquote Antifa person that I've been hearing about on Fox News for the past five years. Like, how do I reconcile that with the fact that we get along and they help me and we're you know doing something positive? There's, there's gotta be a way to, to push that more though. Cause it's, it's not enough, but it's, it's great when it happens. That's awesome. But, uh, gotta be, you know, uh, uh, Michael Albert, you ever listen to yep. his, uh, stuff like, uh, Paracon or, or whatever it is? Sure. Um, cause he has like, he does like, uh, these like, uh, like lectures for like socialists and, um, he'll talk about like, how many of you guys go hang out at sports bars? How many of you guys like, you know, like sports and everybody's like, I don't like sports. It reminds me of being bullied in school or whatever. And, uh, he's like, okay, well, you get, you should be going into sports bars. You should be making friends at sports bars. The left wants to win. You, you gotta get the jocks on her side or like whatever. That's not what he says. But he's basically kind of like, like he makes a good point. I, I do feel like sometimes we are a little bit too in our own kind of like bubble, especially with like the pandemic and everything online. I know that like, being sequestered to my online, like, you know, Twitter and where, Discord and wherever else has completely changed the way I communicate with people. And I'm much worse at talking to my like normie friends, uh, now, um, after all this. So yeah, I think that there maybe should be more of a outreach. I'm not really a huge fan of the idea of like concentrating so much effort into trying to convert nazis i guess that that's good if people can do it but like there are a lot of people who are like apolitical but like confused about things and angry about their place in life the reality is right now that this is something we do have to care about like i remember 10 15 years ago and like there were people that called themselves ANCAPs on the internet and they were all completely ridiculous humans right like they wore weird costumes and they were like Go, you know, they all did like cosplay stuff. Like they were, 
they were weird internet people almost entirely, right? And before that, they were all like early tech, like hacker types, a lot of them. And now, and, and so you could very easily just be like, yeah, that's real fringy. Every once in a while, someone's going to try and talk to me about the gold standard, but generally like that'll happen maybe once every other year or something like that. And usually it's a really weird circumstance. Now we actually have to care about this, you know, and it's kind of like the alt-right, you know, when, when the alt-right rose, one of the things I kept saying is, you know, liberals yelled at us for years about, about being quote alarmist about the right wing. And then all of a sudden Gamergate happens and all of a sudden the alt-right happens and then you get Charlottesville and it's like, yeah, yo, we told you this was going to happen in like 2012 and hell, we've been telling you that this was going to happen for the better part of 30 years, right? Ever since the roots of anti-racist action, we've been talking mm. about this in the US. Um, now, I think we need to also focus on the, the circle of people and partially because they're trying to misappropriate our symbology, right? But partially because they themselves are dabbling in worlds with fascists and they themselves are dabbling in authoritarianism. And regardless of what they want to call themselves, Deep down, what it is, is this attempt to use policing to impose capitalism into everyday life as a total organizational sort of logic of how we how we function. Right. That in itself has authoritarian overtones, regardless of whether or not they want to talk about states in the way that they think about government today or if they want to actually be honest and talk about governmentality, which all of them are advocates for. Right. Every single one of them. Because yeah. all of them still talk about policing because all of them still talk about property, right? Property isn't just that something is mine. It's also about the exclusion of others from having it. How does one do that? How does one enforce shoplifting laws or rules, I guess, in this case, without the ability to get someone arrested for it? How does this function without physical force? It doesn't. And that is a point which I think is stunningly obvious to even most of the people that kind of exist in this camp. And so, really, I think we have to pay attention to this, partially because for some of these people, it is what they say it is. And there's a sort of political risk for us in that. And we already see tankies going like, oh, but all anarchists are capitalists. Blah, blah, blah. And like, yeah, that is tankies being disingenuous and talking in bad faith and not understanding literally anything about political theory. But they have this little toehold now because of people like Michael Malice. And so there is that concern. But we also need to see these people as part of the wider far right. Um, they're not distinct from it, though they may talk in different terms. But ultimately, at the end of the day, there's a reason why they can work with fascists very seamlessly. And it's because of their goals aren't that different. We can see that with someone like Curtis Yarvin. Curtis Yarvin, who read the Johan Most piece in that audiobook, yep. Curtis Yarvin is also a deeply, deeply, deeply racist pro-segregation monarchist. Yeah. So once we start seeing things like that, I think all of us need to really be at least paying some attention to what's going on in these worlds because they are using this as a way to sort of obscure their goals. And they're using this as a way to kind of slide under our radar so we don't go, oh, but those people are fascists and start to come after them. It's a way for them to sort of dip around social accountability. Um, and we can't let that happen because, you know, there were way less of us when the alt-right rose, right? Like the last six or seven years, a lot more people have gotten involved. Um, 
but we didn't pay a ton of att- or at least a lot of people didn't pay a ton of attention to the rise of the alt right, people like Milo, and then it became a big problem. Um, you know, as was said, this is this might be one of the sort of refuges that some of these people land in, and it has the possibility of sort of growing in the same way, right? Sort of being a covert, kind of obscured sort of politics that then builds up inertia and then comes out into public in the forefront. And it seems like we're starting to watch that transition start to happen right now. And that's the real danger point. Like that's the point where nobody caught the alt-right and then it became a big problem. Um, like we can't let that happen again because we had to spend many years of time and effort and resources trying to prevent Nazis from running around the streets of the U.S. killing people uh, because the liberals all said we were being alarmist and no one decided to help. And so here we are again. For anyone that's not an anarchist listening to this show, stop telling people they're being alarmist because we've been right every single time we've been told we've been alarmist about the rise of the far right. Maybe people should take us seriously this time. So before you go, just tell folks how they can follow your work and support what you're doing and where they can go to check out your stuff. Yeah, you can check me out on YouTube at uh, channel Chill Goblin. Um, on Twitter, I'm Chill underscore Goblin. Uh, I describe what I do on YouTube as um, either if PragerU dropped acid and had good <laughs> politics <laughs> – <laughs> or uh, the uh, anarcho-communist magic school bus. That, those would be like the, the two ways I describe my my work. This has been the It's Going Down podcast. Check itsgoingdown.org for daily updates, columns, action reports, and news. Go to itsgoingdown.org/shop to support us and follow us on all social media platforms. IGD, your daily resource for insurgent proletarian life.